0: You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. I'm running a brand new series called Awkward Family Photos. And as you can tell, uh, our our crack staff went out and behind my back, they uh, secured this beautiful photo. And my wife, she was hilarious, she said, oh, I can't believe they're using it. I go, yeah, you were helping, you helped them get the photo, okay? And incidentally, I think she looks awesome in the photo. I mean, somebody said, what is that, Monty and his three daughters? I go, real funny, okay? And yes, I had a mustache for anybody. Everybody goes, wow, dude, you had a stash, you know? And I go, yeah, that's what that is, a mustache, but all that is behind me now. I'm mature. I've grown up. I don't need that anymore. But while we were working on this, you, you think about it. I mean, you've all seen these awkward family photos, right? You've seen them online. There's a whole website dedicated to this stuff. And, and if you've not actually seen an awkward family photo, there's a good possibility you're the one that's making it awkward, Okay. That's why they're not talking to you. But our, our team was working around here, and they actually uh, found another photo. Hang on just a second. They, there's a couple of our guys here that are really good friends. Uh, they're so good friends. They're like brothers. And they apparently had a photo. It was a kind of a glamour shot thing, I guess, done a few years ago. And this is what we found. Uh, Todd Ballard and Nathan Zimmerman both... Nathan, Nathan actually had a perm back then. It, I don't know about, you know, he's got great hair, but he looks good with a perm. And of course, Ballard with that sweater vest, that is beautiful. That was beautiful. Somebody said, Was that their Christmas card? I said, No, but it probably should be. Don't you think? That's great. Sometimes, sometimes, no matter what we try, the picture doesn't turn out. Somebody's blinking, the, the littlest one won't smile, uh, somebody's mad. And so we get these awkward family photos. And somebody would say, well, that wrecked our Christmas card. But you think about it. I don't know about your upbringing, but I grew up in a home where my parents put a lot of effort into Christmas. They wanted to be special for us kids. They made a lot of sacrifices, but it was for us kids. They wanted to be special. And I think there were probably some times they were disappointed because we weren't as excited about what took place as they may have wanted. You set out to have this perfect family event, so you try a new recipe and it bombs. It's terrible. It tastes terrible. Or those gifts that you bought for your, for your kids or your grandkids, they, were, they can't miss gift of the year and the kids weren't really that interested in it. Or maybe the flu makes its way through your family and half of, the, half of your crew is stricken with the bug on Christmas Day. Just not the way you planned it out, right? Right? Well, not only do circumstances get in our way, but just like these awkward family photos, sometimes there are people in our families who intentionally sabotage the holiday. Jimmy Kimmel did this thing a few years ago where he, he, asked, his, he asked the parents to kind of hijack uh, a bit of their kids' gift giving at Christmas. Now, I'll, I'll let the video explain, but watch this. This is pretty funny. Last week, uh, I issued a challenge. I asked the parents of America to put, pull a little holiday trick on their children. We did this on Halloween with candy and got a lot of response to it. So we did it again, this time for Christmas. I asked parents to tell their kids they were going to let them open one present a few weeks early. But instead of a good present, I said put something the kids won't like in the box, and then upload a video of that to YouTube labeled, Hey Jimmy Kimmel, I gave my kids a terrible present. And a lot of people did do this, and um, they did give their kids terrible presents, and a lot of the kids surprisingly reacted poorly to that. What is that? I got ponies! Hey, what's, nice? Mm-hmm. what's wrong? You're not excited about your I presents? I got ponies. I don't want ponies. They're for girls. Guys, we, mine is a stupid book. We thought really hard about what to get you this year. Well, you didn't do a very good job. <laughs> <It's a laughs> marsh- okay, don't hold back, kid. Don't hold back. Oh man. You know some Christmas stories are like that. There's a little bit of humor and later on I think those kids will probably laugh about that. But some Christmas stories are not funny at all. They're just downright brutal. And I was reading a number of uh people's kind of experiences at Christmas uh over the last few years and it's just tragic when sin and selfishness enter in just the just the pain and the suffering that some people can lay on their families during this time of year. I read about a guy, he said, my mom takes a fistful of pills last Christmas morning to deal with her life, and I called her out on it, and the war began, and his signature was worst Christmas ever. Another guy said, one Christmas, my dad got so drunk, he threatened my sister's multiple times and made sure everybody else's Christmas was ruined too. And then one young lady wrote, My mom gives me her annual speech about how she thinks I don't have a heart and I will someday be a cat lady. Worst Christmas ever, she said. Most all of us have family members whose behavior has ruined Christmas, possibly, Or maybe even worse than that, they've ruined more than Christmas. The truth is, there are no perfect families. None. They don't exist. If you look down the row and you think, man, those people have it all together. The truth is, they have a couple of knots in their family tree. And um, they just don't broadcast it. And it was true about Jesus, to be honest with you. His family tree may shock some of us. His genealogy includes the names of people who you would be surprised to find in the royal lineage of the king of kings. Listed in it are liars, people who are sexually promiscuous. There are murderers, there are adulterers, there are idol worshipers, there are drunks. There's even a prostitute who is named in the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, that's kind of surprising because there are four women who are named in the genealogy, which is highly unusual. Actually, women were almost never mentioned in Hebrew genealogies. So, the fact that they're mentioned here leads one to believe that they must be some, you know, really spectacular people, right? But they're not. They're like everybody else on the list. They're deeply flawed individuals but they are part of the family tree of Jesus. Both the sinful men and the sinful women that make up this list are a strong reminder of God's grace to all sinners. One of the Wilkinson family traditions that we have had for a number of years now is we'll take some time on Christmas Day to read the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. How many of you do that? You, You intentionally do that? Thank you for all seven of you that do that. That's great. <clears throat> Maybe some of you could do it this year. We, we read the gospel story, but we skip over the genealogy. Now, a genealogy is just a list of a family's descendants, and they're in the order that they were born. We skip over it because if you have small kids that have a short attention span, they're easily bored if you read all that. Or if you have a wife who's easily bored, you skip over that. Okay. But if you study the genealogy of Jesus, which I'm sure many of you are going to rush out and do after this message, you'll find it's a very interesting fact here. Virtually every name in the list of Jesus' family tree reveals a lesson, some lesson, about God's grace. These people clearly show how important the grace of God is from generation to generation to generation. Genealogies are included in the Scriptures largely for this very reason. Not only to trace the royal lineage of the people of Israel through history, but also they outlined how God was dealing with people down through the decades and centuries. Man's worst sin, his worst rebellion, his worst betrayals have failed to stop the flow of the grace of God. If you read Matthew's genealogy, it's almost as if They are nominating people for the hall of shame. There are so many jacked up lives in this list. It begins to seem like Jesus' royal genealogy is filled completely with sinners because it's largely true. And the worst of the worst is a guy we find, maybe the most spiritually deficient guy in this entire list, we find in Matthew, the first chapter, verse 10. And this is... His name, Manasseh. His father was Hezekiah, his son was Ammon, and his grandson was Josiah. There's some really good people on that page, but not that guy. If you have a little bit of background on Manasseh, his father was King Hezekiah. He was considered one of the most influential reformers in the history of the nation of Judah. We read about him in Second Chronicles, the 29th chapter. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's a good thing. Just as his father David had done. Now, that's not his direct father. They're going way back in history to say, he is a lot like King David. Just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. Listen to what Hezekiah did. Hezekiah was one of the best, probably the most important kings of the nation of Judah. Because he came at a time when they needed somebody to clean it up. He immediately stopped the worship of idols. His first action as king was to reopen the temple and cleanse it. Then he called for a time of national repentance. And then he brought back the Passover celebration, which they had neglected for a number of years. And the worship of God in the nation of Judah had reached a peak that it hadn't seen since the days of King David and King Solomon. And then something happened. Hezekiah died, and his son Manasseh became king. And this is what we read about Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Pause just for a second. Some of you are going, he was 12? Can you imagine a preteen actually being the king of your nation? It is possible. It is possible that he was king. But most most scholars believe he was probably what is called a co-regent. He was named king at the age of 12, but he and his dad served at the same time, co-regents. It is possible, though, he was a 12-year-old king, and he was getting a lot of oversight from his mom, who we know is largely an idolatrous woman, which may indicate why his behavior is what it what it was. But whatever the case, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Manasseh had this great vantage point as he saw his father bring all these spiritual reforms into the nation of Judah, and it seemed to have done little or no good at all with his behavior. Whatever good Hezekiah had accomplished, Manasseh undid over the next 55 years of his reign. He's probably the worst ruler in Judah's history. He reversed his father's reforms, bringing in every form of idolatry that you could imagine, including the occult and witchcraft. He killed off the prophets of God. He erected idols in the temple of God. And he even sacrificed his own sons to a pagan deity. It's not a guy that we would necessarily be proud of being in our family tree. But there he is. He's part of the genealogy of Jesus. I want us to look at his story today because it's a remarkable story. And probably most of you have never read it. But what I want us to do is look at the story with the intent of getting something out of it. And there's four truths that I want to spotlight as we dig into it. The first one is this. Sin complicates things. That's probably not news to you all. Everyone in here probably recognizes that fact. But it's really obvious for Manasseh. Theologically speaking, Manasseh's evil was compared with the evil of the Canaanite nations that God drove out of the promised land. Before the people of Israel took possession of the promised land, God rid them of all these pagan nations. And they compare their sinful religious behaviors with that of Manasseh's. To describe Judah as is described in, in, in verse 2 of our text, to describe it as following the detestable practices of the nations of the Lord, the Lord had driven out, was about as severe an appraisal as you could make about Manasseh. The king was responsible to lead the people of God in the things of God, the ways of God. But this king had failed miserably. In fact, he's leading people in the other direction. He's not leading them toward God. He's leading them away from God. He intentionally renewed idolatry in the land after his father had worked so diligently to rid it and forbid idolatry. I was with a couple of friends this week for lunch, and we were having a conversation about just life in general. And one of the guys said, yeah, my uh, cousin, a few weeks ago, came over and stole from my mom. I said, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, she, he came over and went through her mail. He knew she was getting some checks in the mail. How he knew that, I'm not sure. But he, he was rifling through her mail, throwing stuff that didn't matter to him. And he, he found a couple checks and he stole them. Intentionally came over, regardless of the fact that this was his aunt, he came over to steal from her. There are people who intentionally sin, regardless of who they hurt in the process. Some of you know that. Some of you know that really true. Well, that's exactly what Manasseh is doing here with regard to intentionally expanding idolatry. Manasseh's idolatry was wide-ranging. Listen to what he did. He decentralized worship by rebuilding what were these places called the high places. Now, a high place, here's an example of uh, an excavated high place. They were, they were in high locations. And the purpose of these high places were to worship pagan deities. They were there for the purpose of paganism. But the Jews, because of Manasseh, in part, were going to these high places to worship. Now, this is a, this is a place called the high place at Petra. Okay? They went, they went to places just like that because it was closer to their home, and they would actually worship God in these pagan places. It's like going to, a, you know, a seance or an occult gathering and saying, we're going to have church here. It's really confusing and very corrupting to a person's worship. When the Israelites actually conquered the land of Canaan, they were commanded by God to destroy these places. Because the Canaanite high places were focused on things like fertility cults, where they used male and female prostitutes as part of their worship. They involved child sacrifice oftentimes, and a whole host of other pagan immoralities. We can only imagine. The worship of God, according to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, stipulated the use of one altar in all of Israel, just one altar at the temple of God in Jerusalem as the place for all of Israel to worship. That was it. And the purpose for this was as a safeguard, to protect the people from the corruption of idolatry. When they're worshiping at these high places, they're having their worship corrupted by all the sinful pagan behavior there. But if they went to Jerusalem, to the temple there, it was that one altar, the altar of God. And that was the purpose of God. Worship was corrupted when they worshiped on those high places. So here's what Manasseh did to expand his idolatry. The first thing that we see Manasseh doing is he reintroduced Baal worship in Judah. Baal was probably one of the most common pagan gods that there was in that region, in the Middle Eastern region. Secondly... He he introduced a new cult to the Jewish people, the people of Judah. It was an astrological religion that worshipped the starry host. So it wasn't just bad enough to reintroduce all these old pagan religions. He invented a new one that worshipped the planets and the stars. And then thirdly, Manasseh facilitated multiple deities in the temple of the Lord as he built altars there to all these pagan gods all around the temple of God. In every way, his behavior was unacceptable to God's intent for the temple. In fact, it was highly offensive to God. You could imagine. God had placed his name in the temple there in Jerusalem. Idolatry comes in, though. He brings it in. And idolatry does something I think is very tragic. Idolatry exchanges the God of all the nations for the gods of the nations. Manasseh not only reverses the actions of his father King Hezekiah, but he totally ruins the worship of God in Judah. Just decimated it. Instead of obedience in response to God's gracious his gracious plan of placing his temple among his people, Manasseh starts putting pagan idols in God's temple. Manasseh's list of sins specifies several deviant religious practices. All these practices were actions that were specifically forbidden by God. Listen to what he does. The first one is this, maybe the most horrendous. He sacrificed his own sons in the fire as offerings to a pagan god. Secondly, he practiced the occult, sorcery, divination, and witchcraft. And thirdly, He sought guidance from mediums and spiritists. Experts in this area will tell you that what people think they're talking to are the dead. They're actually talking to demonic spirits. He was involved with some of the darkest of of, uh, religious practices that there were. These were all practices that were common among the nations that were in Cana before Israel took possession. But then Manasseh does something that even the pagans didn't do. Look what he did, number four. Manasseh placed a carved image of God in the temple. Now I want you to take this into context for just a second. Because of the religious consciousness of the people during that era in the Middle East, a lot of people felt that, You had to have some kind of image in order to represent your God. And Yahweh had no image. As distasteful as this was to God, Manasseh made one. And he set it up in the temple of God. God didn't have an idol. He didn't have a sacred stone. He didn't need one. All you had to do was look around. You saw his power. And yet Manasseh said, no, nah, he needs an idol. And so they carved one, and they set it up. Verse 9, how far had they gotten away from the path of God? Verse 9 says, Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray. So they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. How far had they gone? They were worse than the pagan nations who knew nothing about God, who existed there before they got there. How bad was it? It was as bad as it's ever been. The narrative stresses Manasseh's personal responsibility here, but it doesn't take the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judah off the hook. It focuses on the decline of Manasseh's leadership as king. The leadership is so critical of a factor in the spiritual health and maturity of a Christian community. That's why I hope you'll stick around after this service and help us affirm two new elders because godly spiritual leaders are so vitally important to this body, to everybody. But specifically, we're concerned about this body, it's, easily, it's relatively easy to lead people into idolatry. Manasseh did it relatively easily. It is very difficult to lead them out of idolatry. So what happens is, we read verse 10, maybe the saddest verse in this entire text. Look what he says. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. And we could preach an entire series of messages on that right there. They listened. But they didn't hear anything. They ignored him. They paid no attention. The message to repent was sent to Manasseh, but it was also sent to the people of God. And they paid no attention to it. Which leads us to the second truth, and that is this. Sin always has a price. Sin always has a price. If God spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention, then verse 11 gives us God's response. Look what he says. So the Lord brought against them the army. Specifically, we find later, it's the Assyrian army. And he brought them in. It's this is divine retribution against Manasseh. It says he brought them against them. That's probably code for a military campaign. We find later Manasseh rebuilding the outer wall, probably because the Assyrians pulled it down. The fortifications were devastated. Why? Because there was probably a military campaign. Ironically, the God who had captured these pagan enemy cities is now using an enemy of gods to come in and capture and haul away the king of Judah. Now, some scholars speculate about what happened here. Probably the best explanation was that Manasseh had joined a Babylonian coup. They were trying to overthrow the Syrian king Azurbanipal, Azurbanipal. Here's a statue that's dedicated to him. The coup failed, though, and everybody who participated was punished, including Manasseh. And the text tells us that they would, uh, they would, they would put a, a hook through their nose and a chain attached to it, and they would lead the captives on their way back to Babylon. Archaeology tells us that it was a very common way of bringing humiliation and and a method of deporting the prisoners away. So here you have the former king of Judah being led away with a hook through his nose and shackles on his ankles. He's headed as a prisoner of war to Babylon. It is the lowest point in Manasseh's life. You can imagine, there is no thrills as a POW in Babylon. So we see truth number three. As bad as it gets, you're never too far from God. You're never too far from God. Verses 12 and 13 in our text give us a little bit of a change, of course, for Manasseh. It says, In his distress he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, The Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Now it's interesting, in the Hebrew, there's actually, literally, it's the Lord, he is God. And it's there, this this emphasis is there to say to the reader that Manasseh knew this was God. This This wasn't by chance. He called out to the Lord, and he knew that the response was the direct relation to the actions of God. There are six things that happened while Manasseh was in captivity. I want If you're taking notes, you, we're going to take these real fast. The first one is this. He experienced distress. He was a POW. He was, he was not in a good place. But the good that came out of it was God got his attention. It woke him up. The second thing then was he sought God's favor. You know, there's kind of an, an adage or an axiom, when all else fails, call on God. You know, When all else fails, turn to God. And that's exactly what Manasseh did. He had no recourse. This is it. He is flat on his back, and his vantage point is giving him perspective up here, and that's where he looks. Then thirdly, it says he showed humility. He humbled himself. He's a broken man. Humility is not hard to get to from where he is. And then the fourth thing he did is said he prayed. He called out to God. And you may think, what business does he have in calling out to God? I kind of thought that myself. I mean, he's the worst of the worst of the worst, and yet he calls out to God. And here's the amazing story of grace. God listened to Manasseh's plea is the fifth thing that happened. He listened to Manasseh's pleas, and then it says God responded to him. God is faithful. No matter what you've done or where you've gone, he is faithful to keep his promises. If people will seek God wherever they are, even if they're a POW in the middle of Babylon, God will graciously find them. And the results of that happening in Manasseh's life were that God restored Manasseh to his throne. Can you believe that? He was actually the king again. And the Babylonians made that happen. Only God could have, uh, have facilitated this. The story of Manasseh underscores the grace of God like no other text in all the Scripture. I mean, think about this. This guy perpetrated so much evil, that it's just unimaginable. And yet, the grace of God still abounds to outcover or outreach his sins. We read in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. When someone seeks God, truly seeks God with all their heart, the grace of God knows no boundaries, no matter what that person has done. God forgives those who humble themselves and seek Him. That is a promise that if you are far from Him, you can turn back to Him today. Maybe you've never taken that step. Today is the day of salvation. If you just turn to Him and call out to Him, Well, the fourth truth that we find in the text is that all of this is good unless nothing changes, right? And we've all seen this behavior before. The fourth truth is he turned over a new leaf. Manasseh started to do things differently. We read about these these actions of reforms that he took. In verse 14, we read this. It is after this that he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David. Remember we talked about the Assyrians probably decimated their fortifications. Well, that's just the beginning. When he returned to Jerusalem, Manasseh initiated a national renewal program in building projects, fortifications, as well as religious reforms. Now, the religious reforms we read about in verses 15 and 16. You can read the whole text there. But these reversed all of Manasseh's sins. He removed the foreign gods, all the idols, all of them. And the image that he had made for God, he took that out and got rid of it. And then he removes all the pagan altars that he built in the temple of God. And then he restores the altar of the Lord. It was probably neglected when I mean, we have all these other altars, right? Manasseh, in essence, rededicated the temple and reinstituted worship of God as the worship of the people of Judah. Verse 16 says that he told the people of Judah. It says he told Judah to serve the Lord. He is now pointing them back to God. He spent a good portion of his life pointing them away in all these pagan directions, even some of the darkest of darkest darkness, and yet now he is saying, no, this is the way to go. However, the popularity of the high places, they were just too convenient for people to make the trip all the way to Jerusalem. And so we read in verse 17 that the people continued to sacrifice at the high places. Manasseh was successful in removing idolatry from the land, but he couldn't fully repair the worship of God. He couldn't. And it is difficult sometimes to, to undo the harm or the consequences of our sin. Regardless, God is merciful. He's always compassionate, and he's always gracious. As we study the genealogy of Jesus through this series. We've got a couple more messages where we're going to look at other people in this this family tree. We're going to see the reality of the messianic line of Jesus is populated with all of these jacked up lives. I mean, think about it. Fornicators, adulterers, liars, drunkards, all kinds of sinners. And that's the kind of stuff that if we were writing from a human perspective, we would probably, you know, soft-pedal it, glance over it, maybe even ignore it totally. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Word of God consistently refuses to obscure what is truly important. Why is that? Because the people in this genealogy are not what's on display. What is on display in this genealogy is the grace of God. Jesus is a friend of sinners. We read in Matthew nine thirteen, "For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." He came to live among sinful man, and he experienced everything that we experienced. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted, and yet he did not sin. And then he still took on himself the punishment for our sins. That, my friends, is what we call grace. And we see it in the genealogy of Jesus. We see it in the life of Jesus but we also see it today. You may skip the genealogy when you read the Christmas story to your family this Christmas. I hope you'll do that, read the story, not necessarily skip the genealogy, but it's okay. But don't miss the message of the genealogy because it is the heart of the Christmas story. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And you know what's the greatest part of this? The best part of this is that same grace that was evident in the genealogy is still active today. Still today. The same Jesus is saving people from their sins today. No sin, no matter how atrocious, and trust me, Manasseh was setting the standard on what was despicable. But no sin, no matter how bad it was, put sinners too far out of the reach of God. So let me give you this last verse to think about, and then we'll pray. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore, he, that's Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him. If you've never taken that step to make him the Lord of your life, there is no better time than this Christmas season to reach out and make him the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story in uh, a powerful, powerful way. Maybe the first time we've ever read it or ever heard this story. We see you at work here, God. We see the grace flowing toward Manasseh, who I I would dare say, if we took a poll in here this morning, all of us, most of us, probably 80 or 90% of us would agree that Manasseh doesn't deserve grace. that's kind of the secret of your grace. The people who receive it never deserve it. And the truth is, I didn't deserve the grace you extended to me, nor has anyone else here deserved it. And God, we know that there is a price that has to be paid, and we thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for us. That we might have a relationship with you for all eternity. Have our sins washed away. To be made white as snow. Lord, and then you give us a second chance. You pay the price and you give us a second chance. And God, we're forever grateful. I pray today, Lord, for that man or that woman, that young person, that student who's here today, who's never taken that step to make Jesus the Lord of their life. Sin is the problem and Jesus is the only answer. God, may they know that and that this is a safe place where people care about them. When I to introduce them to Jesus, and the sins will be taken away. And just like Manasseh, you will re-consecrate that life. God, may that be the day today they take that step, and they'll never forget it for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus, for taking that, taking that cross and paying that price for us. We praise you, and we pray this, and all God's people said, amen. If you've never taken that step, Today, we're going to worship God, and uh, I'm going to be right down front. There'll be a number of us down here. We'd love to talk to you about it. Don't miss out on the greatest thing that's ever happened. That's Jesus laying down his life for us. Come if you have a decision. Let's stand together and worship him.